0: You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Good morning, and the conversation continues here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio as we ease on into WIP Sunday. And for parents out there who are getting ready to send their children off to college this September, I've got a guest for you. According to the Center for Collegiate Mental Health at Penn State University, they gathered data from 139 institutions. The number of students seeking help jumped from 50%, jumped 50% in 2015 and 20, between 2015 and 2016. Of these students who sought help, 26% said they had intentionally hurt themselves and 33.2% said they have considered suicide. What's this all about? And I'm going to ask that of my next guest, Dr. John Huber, clinical psychologist. Good morning, Dr. Huber. Good morning, Dr. Huber.
2: Good morning, Peter. Thanks for having me on again.
1: I'm fine. My pleasure. What the heck is going on? (laughs) If I had a kid I'm sending to college, I'd be scared to death.
2: Well, you know, a a lot of things are going on, and you know we we've looked at and my students complain about about changes that they don't understand and you know they're they're looking at hey I'm getting ready to invest you know the next 4 or 5 years of my life and and why because the you know the new market for you know college educated jobs is is not what it was just 10 years ago and they're they're confused they're scared uh, we've also got you know, th- these are the millennials and they've been protected by helicopter parents and their parents haven't exactly let them fail and then taught them how to recover from it. So a lot of them have never faced adversity firsthand and I get a lot of students walking in my, my office complaining about that.
1: But suicide? My goodness.
2: <laughs> well, it, and it, 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 that is a scary thought. I mean, the millennial group right now has the highest rate of attempted suicides of any previous generation and it skipped from the second highest to that you know, to the percentage they're at. Now they're at twenty percent attempted and the next highest generation actually were the baby boomers at sixteen percent. And that's a significant leap when you're talking four four percentage points.
1: Is it depression of college life? You're on your own you may be carrying as many as five classes, and every professor wants you to work, 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 work. How much well, you Well, I think,
2: it? you know, th- that is true, but, you know, college students have a lot of downtime, and they don't really know how to handle themselves, you know. Uh, it's, it's traditionally been the thing that, you know, kids in college go to school, and they're having to learn. They're having to adjust. They're first time in their life that, you know, a teacher or a parent's not standing there holding their hands and saying, you know, don't forget you have to you have to study tonight and don't forget tomorrow you have a test and don't they have to do it all on their own. And in a lot of cases this, this generation has never been allowed to fail at that and learn to recover from it. So they don't have the coping skills and it's it's a scary thought. A lot of our schools are trying to make adjustments and and doing things like upward bound, you know, the the year before they go to college, or the summer before they go to college, having their students come in and work on on, hey, what life is going to be like when you're in the dorm room, and if you decide not to go to bed till four in the morning, and you have class at eight, well, how are you going to deal with that?
1: How much of it is dorm life? Um, you move into a dorm room; it's probably the size of a large closet, and you've Just got about. a and you've got a roommate. And you hate your roommate. I mean, you're, you're a neat freak, and he's a slob.
2: Exactly. Uh, you know, it's funny. I actually did 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 a lecture at my university this summer on that one topic right there, and I was amazed how many students stayed after and had specific questions and concerns on how to deal with that. Uh, that that is a problem, and some of the problems now are. Well, look at look at their social media. That should tell you everything. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa! That that's not real life. That's this artificial thing. You know? Do y'all ever go out and do things as as you know a, a roommate and say, let's let's figure out who we are and what's going on in in this world and how we can adjust? And I get blank stares.
1: Then there's drugs, alcohol, and sex.
2: Oh yeah.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and And the other side of that too, is you know they're right in the prime time for mental illness. We know most mental illness occurs between the ages of 16 and 25 years of age, so they're right in that peak time, and a lot of it has to do with, again, they're not sheltered anymore, so these things su- uh, surface and become significant in their lives. And where do they go for help with that?
1: Hopefully, they go to college health services.
2: And the college health services are really good at doing things like, oh, I'm homesick. How do I deal with that? Really good about dealing with how do I I study and prepare for my classes. But when they get serious mental illness issues, they tend to escort or take the person on to uh, hospital emergency rooms or state hospitals. And a lot of our students are afraid to go to those facilities. It's turning
1: out. Is there still among the millennials the stigma of mental health? I'm not crazy, so I'm not going to a counselor.
2: Yes, it still is. Um, They're they're more willing to talk about it. But when it comes down to brass tacks, it's, it's still there.
1: So how do parents, how do we as parents prepare our children for this life? knowing that there's this mental health grand canyon that they could fall into
2: <laughs> well the first thing i recommend to to the parents that i work with and i get i get kids as young as six years old seven years old in my office uh, i i recommend that you know you let your kids fail sometimes they don't want to turn in assignment they're afraid to you know that or, or it seems overwhelming and so they just give up and and we don't want parents to step in and finish that assignment for them. I want you, as a parent, to let your kids not complete that assignment, and then how do they deal with the aftermath? I mean, you know, when you're in third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, you know, that GPA is not going to affect you getting into college, and the kids need to start learning how to deal with perhaps uh, teachers who have really extreme expectations or maybe, the fact that they need to pick it up and perform at different times in their lives and they need to learn their consequences for not doing that.
1: Now that's interesting. If I failed and I'm of a certain age and came home and said, I have a, I have an E or I didn't turn in the assignment and teacher got mad. I got a smack in the head from my father.
2: <laughs> so did I. Uh, and I got, I got told, you know, you're, you're, you're a reflection of me and if you don't do that. It makes me look bad as a parent. Today we don't get that. I have, I have parents bringing their kids into my office and then telling me how they went to the principal or to the teacher and told them how bad a teacher they were for letting their kid not complete an assignment and fail.
1: And that's we, pretty scary. We send our children off to college, and sometimes they're close enough that we can jump in the car or even jump in a plane and go visit. Yes. How often should a parent visit?
2: I think a parent should uh, be in touch with their kids at least you know, every two or three days, see how things are going. Uh, if you have concerns with your child, I recommend that you get uh, a letter from your child with their signature that gives you the right to uh, communicate with their professors and talk to them about what's going on in the classroom, have the students sign it and date it, scan it into a, a PDF file, and then make an email contact to all all those students' professors. Uh, tell them, you know, you, you stay in contact with your child and uh, you just want to know if things are falling apart. And email them periodically. Uh, they've got, in my my case, I've, I've had semesters where I've had upward of 1,400, 1,500 students. So, uh, if, if I get in, you know, inundated with emails every single day, they don't get answered. So give me a week, ten days, maybe two weeks. See how things are going on, and are, is my student coming to class? And it's pretty interesting when you get an email like that, and you tell your, tell that student in class that you need to show up, and off in your office hours, and those students start checking in on you. It's amazing how they start becoming more responsible, showing up to class and their grades turning around. Well, that's and you don't even have to tell them the parents have contacted you. You just call them out.
1: That's interesting to me, though, that you have to get a letter from your kid because it's an astounding fact. But once they're off to college, they're considered adults, and even though you're paying the tuition and you're paying room and board as a parent, you're not entitled to know anything. Just because You're
2: not. <laughs> I can't even tell you if you're, they're in my class on my roster or not. Uh, I have to get consent from your child to do that.
1: Maybe that's a document you ought to get the child to prepare before he goes to college.
2: I think so. And you need to have probably renew it every semester. Uh, and that, that alone helps significantly. It's, it's amazing how, when a parent contacts me, and the funny thing is, I get I get contacted by parents all the time, and I tell them this very same thing: they need to get me consent. And parents are up in arms; they can't believe it. I'm paying the tuition, uh, but th- there are specific rights, Freedom of Ed- Education Act, and uh, the funny thing is, doctors and attorneys. Whenever they email me, they've already got the letter written, and the <laughs> student has it
1: signed. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Um, do parents get told if their child's in mental health trouble?
2: That's another thing that, that is uh, disconcerting. Again, that, that if they go to a professor uh, and they've got consent to communicate with the professor, the professor may say something to the parent that, hey, there's some stuff going on here. If they go to the clinic, the student goes to the clinic, they're not going to go necessarily and reach out to the family unless there is a crisis, like the student attempts uh, some kind of suicide or self-harm and ends up being hospitalized. That The parents will usually get contacted in that situation. But if they're just going in to see the counseling department, to deal with being homesick or dealing with managing time and and how they be this independent person, they're not going to get notified unless the student lets them have access to that.
1: Scary. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. My guest, Dr. John Huber, clinical psychologist, we're talking about mental health and children going off to college. More than 75% of all mental health conditions begin before the age of 24. Dr. Huber, I have to run a few commercials, so I need you to stay with me. We'll be back in just a bit. The WIP time, 7.15. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest, Dr. John Huber, clinical psychologist, and we're talking about mental health and kids going off to college. My name's Peter Solomon. Now, Doctor, I'm glad you talked about going to the counseling center because I have a confession to make. I was in college, and that was a few years ago, um, and I was drowning. I was drowning in terms of my um, courses. I remember one course, um, Art History, where you had to memorize 150 slides, and that was, like, beyond what I could do. I went to the counseling center, got assigned a really good counselor. He taught me how to think. He taught me how to write. He taught me how to cope, and I owe at least three-quarters of my college degree to this man because he got me through, and that's a really important thing. It um, is. And if you find it one that works, it's really, really important, so I salute him. Um, is there prevention we can do?
2: Is there prevention we can do? Well, much like the, the, the counselor that you talked to, Having our kids learn how to be independent study on their own, how to deal. I mean, you know, some kids benefit from learning how to do something as simple as meditating because they can clear their head and find where where they're going. So getting your child into, and it doesn't have to be meditation, like, you know, you, you, you spend hours doing things, but it could be as simple as, getting them into a set routine that they go and for example jog three or four times a week so they can clear their head and they can work through and balance balance their life because that's one of the things that is very difficult for our incoming students and in even students who are there it's how do you balance life. They're there, they're trying to be social animals, they're trying to make friends and a lot of these friends that they make, if they're good, successful relationships, will stay with them the rest of their lives. And so they see the importance of it at the same time. If they're not maintaining their grades, and th- then it's all for naught. So they focus on that. And then in a lot of cases, our students are having to work themselves through college today than not before. So they have work pressures on top of everything. And it is a real adult struggle, even though they're still in school.
1: What about medication? Kid goes to the health center, the health center offers him a pill. Should a parent accept that?
2: Well, I'm, I'm not against medication. The problem is that it, it becomes a crutch in a lot of cases because a lot of, you know, I have students walk into my office all the time saying things like, oh, well, well, my doctor won't give me Adderall because I'm in a different city. You know, I don't, I don't live in Houston anymore and we're in Austin or I'm from Oklahoma City and they won't you know, write me the script here because I'm here in Texas. Uh, it, you know, we have to look and see what they're what they're dealing with as far as uh, the medication, the types of medication, how frequently they use it. You know, when I have students who tell me, oh, I only need it during finals, then it's not a real, I mean, it, you're dealing with stress that, that you can't, you know, have this kind of demand for this medication. The rest of your life, you don't need it. You only need it when you're at these peak times. That that makes me concerned as a mental health provider that you really don't need the medication. You need to learn different coping skills for that situation because the rest of your life is
1: functioning well. And I'd like to say thank you to Dr. John Huber for being with us this morning and giving parents some things to think about as they pack their child and send them off to college. Thank you, Dr. Huber. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And it's been WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon, 94 WIP. And I have a little something to remind people of, because it is the 4th of July weekend. On this date, in 1776, Congress decided the Continental Congress decided that they were going to say that it was time to break from England and the exact words they put out there, um, can't find it so I confess, um, it laid the foundation for the Declaration of Independence, which we're going to celebrate on Wednesday. Stay tuned as we continue WIP Sunday in just a bit. My name's Peter Solomon. We'll be right back. And we're back in from um, College Mental Health Problems to drug and alcohol problems, whether they're a college student or whether they're a grandmother. I'd like to say good morning to a very famous man in the addiction field, Chris Prentice. Chris is the founder and director of Passages. Passages, you may have seen the commercial on TV because I know I have. Treats in a luxurious setting, alcohol and drugs. Good morning, Chris Prentice. Good morning. What, what, what's what's um, Passages all about? Help us understand it.
3: What is addiction about?
1: Now, what is pre- um, Passages about? What do you do?
3: Oh, well, we are a substance abuse treatment center. We're in uh, Malibu, California, Ventura, California, Venice, California, and Santa Monica, California. And we have about 350 people who work at Passages centers. And we were the first non 12 step program in America. Uh, We started about 17 years ago. Uh, Passages was the result of my son's 10-year fight with heroin, cocaine, and alcohol. And learning how to cure PAC, we learned how to cure everybody. And when we were finished with that 10 years and we had finally found the reason that PAC was doing his drugs which is at the heart of everyone's addiction, the reason. About three weeks later, he said, look, we know how to do this. Let's do it. So here we are, 17 years later, we're still doing it. And Passages is a, uh, a model. And now, because of Passages, there are probably two or 300 treatment centers in the United States who are advertising that they are non-12-step. Most of them say we do what Passages does, but uh, that's actually not true. But whatever the case may be, the uh, underlying condition for all addiction there's only four conditions, only four reasons. I know it sounds like there may be thousands, but there are actually only four reasons why people become addicted apart from the addictive quality of the drugs themselves. And uh, the first one is a chemical imbalance. Um, we have 51 neurotransmitters in our brain, and some of them get out of whack. And when uh, Passages started for the first three and a half years, everyone who came to Passages was given an electroencephalograph exam, which means that we hooked eight electrodes up to their skull. We read their brainwave patterns for 15 minutes, then took the quietest 10 seconds of it when their brain was at rest. And we ran it through a computer that had the baseline in it. And we found that every single person, all the people, if there wasn't one exception, had a brainwave pattern that was outside the normal range. So top of the list. Addiction is a neurotransmitters that aren't firing correctly. The second reason are events of the past they haven't been able to reconcile. Things that happened to them along the way. When they were children or later, some trauma, some event that they can't get past, rape, brutality, um, all the things that happen to people on the way up as they're aging, And they just can't get past it. And the third thing are current conditions they can't cope with. Anything that causes real stress. Failing marriage, failing business, long-term illness. And the last thing are things they believe that aren't true. Because since 1935, when the 12-step programs began, they've been telling people that alcoholism and addiction are diseases. And that they're incurable. And when you go to a 12-step program, they tell you that the best you can do is manage your disease and that you're going to have it for life, that you have to get a sponsor, you have to go to meetings multiple times a week, you have to call your sponsor every day. None of that's true. Alcoholism and addiction are not diseases. We have treated thousands and thousands of people, cured them actually come through the packages programs. we have never seen anything that even resembled a disease. For instance, Alzheimer's, cancer. Those are diseases. You can't quit those. But millions of people quit this every year on their own. So it's misinformation to think that alcoholism and addiction are diseases. I know it seems sometimes when they lag on for years, it seems like they're diseases, but they're not. And... All the people who have come to passages who have been told that they had diseases have gratefully found out that that's not the case. And they were, many of them were cured <laughs> just by finding out that they didn't have a disease. Hmm. So that's basically what we do. What are your other questions?
1: Well, all right. I can hear people out there gasping as you say, 12 steps are not the way to go. What's wrong with 12 steps?
3: Well, the major problem with 12-step is the fact that they consider it a disease and incurable, broken forever. And, you know, one of the main uh, basis for cure is hope. And they take it away from them, broken forever. And they take their power away from them. And, you know... I don't know what the actual statistics are, but the people who have studied it have told me that the 12-step programs have a success rate below 10%. And in the first three and a half years, we were in existence when we could still keep in touch with all of our graduates. They were reporting an 84.6% success rate. And so I don't think we don't do it anymore. We don't keep in touch with them. There are too many people to contact. but. I don't think we've gotten any worse at it. I think we've probably even gotten a little better at it. But the problem with the 12-step programs is that they don't believe in a cure.
1: Mm-hmm. What, what do you do in therapy? So, I mean, you mentioned the um, electroencephalogram. What happens? When someone goes. Oh, what else do we do yes. for people? Yes.
3: We, when a person checks into passages in Malibu, there's a 10-person team that works with them uh, we do we have therapists who work with us who are highly skilled highly trained people and they're looking for one or more of those four causes that i mentioned earlier and when we find them and we cure them the addiction ends you know no one wants to be a junkie and no one wants to be an alcoholic you know and actually You know, we don't even believe in those words. I mean, they may apply to people who drink all their lives and never stop. But, you know, um, they're just people who have um, been drinking or doing drugs to cure some underlying condition, not to cure it, but to deal with it. You know, when a person is in a situation where their business is failing and their marriage is failing and... They're in, under great stress. You know, they come home and there's, a, there's nothing that makes them feel better except a drink. And then two is better and three is even better than that. And pretty soon they become reliant on it. And after a while, it gets to be a habit. And, you know, the, one of the worst things about alcohol <laughs> is it ruins your stop mechanism. You don't have the ability to stop anymore. And that may sound like a disease, but as soon as you start to stay away from it, as soon as you stop doing it, then your stop mechanism comes back into play, like a muscle that you don't use.
1: What is this luxury addiction treatment all about?
3: Oh, luxury addiction treatment is uh, because we're in Malibu, California, which is an upscale community, and we have uh, mansions, estates, in Malibu where people come to treatment and the rooms are beautiful and the food is exquisite and the therapy that they get is the best in the world and but we have other centers you know we have a center in Ventura California which is about 35 minutes away from Malibu and we we treat people there who are not well off we most of the people who come to the passage isn't well off. They have insurance. About seventy percent of the people who come to us are just coming to us on insurance. And in Ventura about eighty percent of the people have insurance. And ones who don't, you know, it's a lo- it's a lesser price expenses. It's only about twenty percent of the cost of Malibu. And people can afford it. And so they come there and they get really good treatment. Um the outcomes in Ventura are no worse than they are in Malibu. They're just as good.
1: And you're listening to WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this man this morning is a rather extraordinary man. Chris Prentice, co founder and co director of Passages, the addiction center located in Malibu, California, all over California. Um And he's got a lot to say. Now, Chris, I need you to stay with me a little bit longer because i got to run a few commercials to be able to pay the bills around here. We'll be back in just a bit. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Chris Prentice. Um, He's the co-director and co-founder of World Famous Passages Addiction Center. And we have some callers this morning, Chris. So let's say good morning to Eric. Eric, your comment or question, please.
4: Yes, good morning.
1: Good morning. Um, third time caller, first
4: time actually going through with the call. I always get so nervous. <laughs> um, I, I applaud you if the passengers is getting people sober because I've been an addict since the sixth grade, and I'm 48 years old. And um, I'm presently using again. <laughs> and uh, I don't know... Um twelve step program was the you know, I just gave up two years sober and um twelve step is the only thing that kept me sober. And uh I admit that it's through a lot of tragedies in my life to abuse. And um but I believe that it it comes it starts with obsessive and compulsive behaviors and just not wanting to be responsible for self. And um, I'm just like stuck between a rock and a hard place again. And uh, I just bought a house and started a business and picked up. And uh, it's real hard. And I I realized that the only way I can stay sober is when I'm helping others stay sober. Because I take the focus off myself. And I've done some CBT therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy and stuff like that. And um, I believe that it is a permanent disease that can be treated on a daily basis. And my question to you is through passages, when you're finished there, what do you do to maintain the sobriety? Like you say, you can cure somebody. Well, if somebody's cured of their addiction, does that mean if they're out with family at a wedding, they can have a glass of wine successfully? I don't know what cure means because it puts, you get put under a lot of pressure at a place like a wedding or something like that with family, and you may think you just can have a glass of wine. What prevents you from picking up that first glass of wine?
3: Actually, nothing.
4: And some of our
3: clients that come to us actually do go back and have an occasional drink, but we don't recommend that. And the reason we don't recommend that because alcohol destroys your stop mechanism so you know it's nothing that you want to deal with you don't want to dally with alcohol
4: Um, my whole family was in the bar business my whole life my father owned the bar my uncles my cousins like I was groomed I used to play liar's poker at seven years old when they came back from the bar to my house and I was raised by, I raised myself, you know, in a household of junkies, and I'm the baby of the family. And I was the only one that didn't touch nothing. And then at some point, I got jammed up later in life. And now I'm really
3: stuck. Well, Eric, we treat many people just like yourself, people who have been drinking for 30, 40 years, and they leave passages and they never drink again. And the reason for it is because we discovered the real reason they're drinking you think the reason you're drinking is because you're addicted and that it's (laughs) incurable. That's not true. And, you know, we have a book that you can read if you can't afford to leave your business and come to treatment. We have a book that we wrote that is called The Alcoholism and Addiction Cure. And uh, if you call passages and you ask them to send you the book, uh, we'll do that. You know, we'll send you the book for free. Uh, okay. I'm going to give you the passenger's phone number to call. It's 888-777-8525. Eight, 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 I'm going to repeat, eight, I'll repeat seven, that seven, for seven, you. 777.
4: I got 777. Seven,
3: I'll, re- seven. I'll repeat that for you. It's 888-777-8525. 3837. 525 now when I I'm right now I'm in Florida opening another treatment center and when I came here about two and a half years ago to start that it's a hospital that's been for that's been closed for about seven years so it's taken a lot of work to get it open again but when I first came here my wife and I my wife's name is Lynn she's an acupuncturist we checked into I the in I believe in that <laughs> we checked into the Tidelines Hotel, and when I handed my driver's license over to the clerk, she said, oh, you're Chris Prentice. You're with Passages, right? I said, yes, I am. She said, my husband read your book nine years ago. He's been sober ever since. Mm. So you can get the book. It's called The Alcoholism and Addiction Cure, and you can okay. call Passages, and they will send it to you. You can tell them that you talked to Chris Prentice, and... Uh, They'll take down your information and they'll send you the book. Also, it's okay. available at all bookstores. All bookstores carry it. Uh Amazon carries it. All the online booksellers carry it.
4: And I we'll haven't worked you. since I picked up. I can't I can't hold a job using I'm a heroin addict. Mm. I'm My an alcoholic first, but when I picked up heroin, alcohol went out the door, all the money had to go to heroin for the last twenty years and I just threw away two years and fourteen days sober.
3: Okay, listen, listen, my son was addicted to heroin, cocaine and alcohol for 10 years. I had him clean 50, 60 times, he almost lost his life three times, times. and it wasn't until we found out why he was doing it, that he was able to quit. Once we found out the why behind his using, he was able to quit, and he knew it was over, because. And you know, every time he relapsed, I would say, "Pact, why are you why are you doing this?" And say, it's, "It's the high." He said, "You know, I've never had anything like it in ordinary reality." That I go back to it for the high. I said, "No, nope, something else. Not that. That's not the reason. There's some other reason why you're doing it." And the day he found out what that other reason was was the last day he ever did it. And three weeks later, he said, "Look, we know how to do this." And so here we are, seventeen years later, we're still doing it. We cure thousands and thousands of people. The people who come to passages, most of them, almost all of them, leave drug-free and they stay that way. Alcohol isn't just another drug, it's ethanol. And so... I
4: don't use for the high. I just use because I don't want to feel. Yeah, right. Because my self-esteem, my my self-esteem is is so low. The first time I went into rehab, I was in a basketball game. I was a just 22 years old, I think I was. And in a basketball game, in that rehab, I someone tripped, and their shoulder hit me in the jaw, and I lost nine teeth right there. Mm. There went my sobriety because now I have no teeth, <laughs> and I have no way to get them fixed. And for the last, since 1999, when that happened, my self-esteem is so low, I don't socialize with nobody. I had beautiful teeth, and there was nothing I could do about it because they said that I signed a waiver if I get hurt in there, and I can't afford teeth. I, I haven't smiled in 20 years, and I know that's the root of it. Are those teeth still missing? Yeah. I have no teeth. I have two teeth left, and it's due to an accident. In a well, rehab, you know, then, I signed a waiver. I can't sign nothing, and ever since then, I haven't socialized. I don't have one friend. i have nobody. I'm all alone. Well, you know...
3: Getting new teeth isn't that expensive anymore. Look into it.
4: They want
1: twelve grand. I did. That's ridiculous. <laughs> that's ridiculous. You
3: spend more than that on drugs and alcohol every year.
4: Yeah, ten dollars a day, though, and ten dollars at a time. It's hard to, you know, come up with the, the actual money. I don't know. Love I just, that's that's it's that's, that's, that's. I'm not saying that's why I'm still using. I'm using because I want to use more than I want to stay sober right now. That's the bottom line when I know that. Because once I pick up, I can't put down. Something has to put me down. Either the law or or, or, you know, like I went to get a bag of dope one day, $10 bag of dope, and I didn't come home to my family for seven years and six days. I lived in the street. You know, that's the kind of I was because I didn't want no one to see me that way. Right. Well, look, Derek, you
3: know, you've had a tough time. You can end it anytime you want. Call the number that I gave you, eight 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 seven 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 eight five two five. 777 Ask them to send you a book and read it and follow the information in the book. Just read it and follow it. Pax's story is in the book. He wrote it himself. Eric. And let me tell you something. Pax was far more addicted than you have ever been. And you'll read his story in the book and it'll give you some hope because if facts can get cured, everyone can get cured. And you know something? Uh We have, believe it or not, Eric, you know, we have people who come to pastures who have far greater stories, terrible stories about what happened to them in their lifetimes than yours. And they get cured and they don't use drugs or alcohol ever again. You know, one of the things that's the hardest, is the belief that you can't get cured. You know, when you, when you believe you can't do something, you don't even try to do it. Yeah. I mean, why would you try to do something you don't believe you can do? But you can do it, and you will do it. All you have to do, read the book, understand what you're doing, follow the directions in the book, and you can be cured as well.
4: I'm going to try to get in. I'm, I'm hoping to get into a detox to, to get me to stop and then go from there. I, until I stop, I can't get any kind of help. I, I can't go yeah, through well, a cold turkey no more.
3: Do you have the money for detox?
4: I have um, insurance.
3: Okay. But they're well, only going to offer
4: me methadone maintenance is all they're going to offer me.
3: Who is your insurance company?
4: in a better health
3: is it a PPO or uh, you know sure assistance can you go to any doctor you want
4: well I do have a family physician but I'm pretty much can go to anywhere I had like any hospital or yeah you know, well, I do have a family do come,
3: in that case you can come to passages we accept their insurance
1: think about it Eric Eric, I, want I don't to... know how I would get there.
3: Well, you'll figure that one out, but don't worry about it. Just take the first step and pick up the phone, call, and get the book. I Alcoholism addiction cure and read it.
1: Eric, this, okay. is... this is Peter, Eric.
3: Good luck, Eric.
1: And I, want I to... listen to you every week, Peter. Thank you. I want to say how much I admire your courage in picking up the phone and talking to us today. So thank you. Mm. Thank you. That's...
3: That's the first step, picking up the phone. Absolutely.
1: And we've got to move on, unfortunately, Eric. But, Eric, you stay in touch, all right? Call us again, please. Let us know how you're doing. And I want to say good morning now to Scott. Scott, you're on the air.
0: Hello, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Um, my comment pretty much is uh, I've been sober for 10 years, and I was in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm very passionate about uh alcoholism and drug addiction, um, AA Alcoholics Anonymous has saved my life. It actually saved my life more than once. I've been a full blown, I've been full blown in addiction since 10th grade, sophomore year, in high school. And, uh, the only thing that has ever worked is AA. When I went away to rehab and, um, I got this stuff out of my system and, uh, I really did, yeah. That stop mechanism that he's talking about—that uh, what gave me hope in the, in rehab—is when you find out that alcoholism is a, is a disease, and I truly believe it is because once the phenomenon of craving sets in, the the push of obsession of mind and body. Like once I started drinking, I was never able to stop there was no one beer with me. There was no one drink with me. Um, And if there was, I was restless and discontent until I was able to finish my load. So I believe I was born with that, whatever it is, a gene or a mechanism in your body that triggers that phenomenon of craving. Um, My life is, is leaps and bounds because I'm sober. And on a daily basis, it has to be a daily basis. Like, I believe this guy's a salesman for passages, and that's all I believe. And yeah, the the the, the stats and everything that he's talking about—we're talking about a billion people across the world that don't stay sober. If I stay plugged into Alcoholics Anonymous, with the fellowship, with the leadership, with the um, not leadership—there's no leadership in AA—with um, the fellowship, with the literature, with the spirituality that I've gained. Um, with the men that are sober 40-some years, 20-some years, that I, I follow them and watch what they do and do what they do. That's how I'm able to stay sober. Um, and, and, of course, you don't pick up. That's it. And My heart goes out to guys like Eric, and I hear the pain in them. And you're talking about that one phone call? That's what it is. It, it, it is getting in touch or walking into an AA meeting and really finding out how these guys are staying sober. And, no, there's no cure. I don't believe in a cure. I believe it, 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 that you have, uh, on a daily basis, if you're supposed to do what you're supposed to do and follow the 12 steps, then, yes, you you are away from alcoholics and alcohol and drugs. Um That's my true passionate feeling. I've lived it. And he's talking about Zach. There's no way that he has a better story than hundreds of guys that I've met in AA. They're all the same. It all winds up being the same. Once you pick up, you can't stop. And it's that mental obsession that you have until you find something to take that away. And and all power to anybody that – takes a leap forward to, to try to get sober and stay sober. You know, I'm not knocking any rehab, any, anything like that, but I just can't see anybody saying that this isn't
3: a disease Where because I've lived it. Well, I congratulate you on your success. You've done a marvelous job. You've found out what worked for you, and that's great. And And let me just say this to you. I'm not knocking the AA program. They have cured, I don't, I don't say they've cured anybody. But they've helped many, many millions of people stop using. But the fact is that we have a method that we use, and those people don't go to meetings every day or every week. And they don't call their sponsors, and they're just as free from it as you are. It's
1: all You're about saying what works. Next,
0: These people have to call their sponsor every day. They have to um, go to a meeting every day or every week. Nothing has fulfilled my life more than watching another man or woman, for that matter, transform their lives by believing that they can stay sober. And and for us to make a meeting once a week, twice a week, three times a week, I go as much as I can because that guy sitting there in pain that I know that I've been through and I can help that man by doing what I do. All right.
1: Thank you so you much, know, Scott, for your story. Life or, it's
0: life or death and please don't knock AA. And you're 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 putting it it sounds like you're putting
3: it down, Chris. It really does and, and Okay, well look, in in one way in one way I am. Because I know you are. We and that, that because ahead, we don't believe. Listen, we don't believe that addiction is a disease. We've proven it over and over and over again. Addiction is not a disease. You can believe that, and it helps you stay sober. That's wonderful. But the fact that is that we have cured thousands and thousands of people, and we've never even seen any temples that we've cured broken hearts people of beliefs that they had that weren't true, but no diseases. However, what works, works. And this is what works for you and it works for other people in AA. That's wonderful. That's great. But there are other ways. And those ways don't require meetings, they don't require programs. They require finding out what is driving the addiction to begin with. You have something you, that's driving you. You don't think that in
0: AA, and you don't think that in AA, the twelve-step program. You don't think that they find that out, like that's no, what they you're saying. Me. Yes, they no, do. They don't. I did. I did. I did. I know it for a
3: fact. What was there's isms,
0: and what, what makes was, you Okay, t-
3: tell me. Okay, Pat, tell me what was driving your addiction. What was
0: driving my addiction is that I didn't like myself for what happened to me as a kid. And growing up and all the things that led up until sophomore year just I had a choice and once I picked that drug up, yeah, the lights went off and uh, it made me feel like I didn't have to worry about anything and I liked that so much and it worked. that' alcohol is what works for the longest time and then okay one,
3: so and, and you, then found one, out, you found out the reason for your addiction. There was many things. There wasn't just one reason.
0: But I found out the reason for my addiction was because once I put it in my body, is that I couldn't stop. And that's what gave me the hope. It was a phenomenon of craving. That's what the disease is. And you even said it, the mechanism of stop. And I know that sounds like a disease, and it is. And it's a matter of opinion, that's true. And that's what you sound like to me as a salesman for passages. He, because a... you're not an addict, and you're not an alcoholic, and you don't know. No, I'm not. Death. You might—you might seen your son go through it, but you don't know them feelings that millions of people across the country are going through on a daily basis to fight this addiction. It's horrible. It's absolutely oh, horrible. And the twelve-step actually... program and the twelve-step program of Al-Anon. The the people who have those broken hearts, that helps them tremendously through the fellowship and and dealing with other people. Like, these 12-step programs are the best thing that God has ever created. And the smartest people on earth are the ones who put them, two men. They took two men, Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson, to put this AA together. You know what I mean? And they found that fellowship, and then 100 men put that Alcoholics Anonymous book together, that you don't have to buy, that, that any alcoholic will be free, will, will be willing to give it to you for free. Alcoholics meetings, AA meetings are free to go into, hey. and it's, it is
1: a cure on a daily basis. Scott, Scott, <laughs> Scott, 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 I'm sorry, i got to stop, because it's time for Sunny Hill, and I appreciate your call, and it works for you, so I congratulate you for that. It's taken That's a lot of courage to stay top. sober. And I appreciate that. Thank you. Take care. And I want to say thank you as well to Chris Prentice. There's many roads to the same destination, and it sounds like AA is one of them and Passages is another. So thank you, Chris Prentice. You're welcome. And one more time, that phone number.
3: 888-777-8525. Thank you, you Chris can call there for an appointment to come in and join our program. We'll take insurance, or you can ask him for a free book, The Alcoholism and Addiction Cure.
1: Thank you, Chris Prentice. And stay tuned for Sunny Hill, interesting and provocative discussion in the living room. My name's Peter Solomon. Nothing left to say, but have a good day.
0: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.